You're listening to the Thesis Review Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Wellick. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Washington, and my research focuses on machine learning, natural language processing, and structure prediction. On the Thesis Review, I'll interview researchers from around the field, centering the conversation around their PhD thesis. In addition to exploring the technical content, this will give insight into their history as a researcher, allow us to revisit older ideas, and provide a valuable perspective on how their research and the field itself has evolved since their PhD days. My guest today is Dustin Tran, who is a research scientist at Google Brain. His research focuses on advancing science and intelligence, including areas involving probability, programs, and neural networks. Dustin's PhD thesis is titled Probabilistic Programming for Deep Learning, which completed in 2020 at Columbia University. We discuss deep probabilistic programming, which involves systems at the intersection of probabilistic modeling and deep learning. We first focus on Edward, a Python library for probabilistic modeling, inference, and criticism that Dustin developed during his PhD. Edward allows for scaling up and implementing new models and inference algorithms that leverage deep neural networks and automatic differentiation. We talk about the design decisions behind Edward and its successor, Edward 2.0, which is also included in the PhD thesis. Next, we move to the novel inference algorithms and models that he developed in the thesis, including the variational Gaussian process and hierarchical implicit models. Throughout, we discuss various topics related to the probabilistic perspective, designing the right abstractions, and more. I apologize for my audio quality during the interview, as I selected the incorrect microphone during recording. But more importantly, Dustin's audio sounds great throughout. The thesis review is available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to follow us on Twitter at Thesis Review. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash thesisreview or become a recurring supporter at patreon.com slash thesis review. The thesis review runs on contributions from you, the listeners. So to keep the show up and running, please consider supporting the show. As always, there are links to the thesis and the papers that we mentioned in the show notes. Here's Dustin Tran with Probabilistic Programming for Deep Learning on the thesis review. Yeah, so in your thesis, you look into deep probabilistic programming, and this kind of involves things uh, from two different aspects. So one is developing new software for this deep probabilistic programming, and the other is developing uh, kind of novel methods, models, inference methods. And so it kind of raises this broader um, question of like engineering versus research and versus science. So how do you think about these types of things? I mean, are they all kind of the same or do you view them as having kind of different mindsets or different goals? Mm. Um, it's a good question. I think there is certainly a, a core theme around um, systems for machine learning and AI. And that's certainly been um, something that's been, you know, increasingly more critical um, uh, ever since, I guess, the deep learning revolution. Um, but it has been an, um, 
uh, an ongoing theme since the um, 50s in the AI field, since the even the 30s and 40s, since just uh, raw statistics. Um, so I do think that um, understanding this parallel between um, systems and the actual research undergoing like individual ideas, like just mathematical um, formulas is um, uh, crucial. And there are so many different elements that go into um, what that intersection is from like the models that are just mathematical things to actual bits. So you start thinking about memory, you start thinking about um, costs of compute, um, hardware involved to train them, uh, data sets and the amount of information that exists like the entropy, for example, that exists in the data set versus the model, things like that. To what extent do you feel like good, well-engineered libraries and infrastructure is actually partially responsible for, or has like played a large role in this deep learning boom? Because like when things like you know TensorFlow, PyTorch come out, it kind of changes the way you think about how difficult it is to try something new. Yeah. Um... I think one way I like to think about things is um, sort of from an individual researcher's, researcher's perspective and sort of like what they're able to do dependent on the existing resources from the overall like one versus all ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So that's everything else that the researcher doesn't have the capacity to be able to do. Um, and a huge amount of things that an individual researcher cannot do is leverage the, um, like build out the massive amounts of data sets that are, you know, um, readily available these days, um, you know, that's certainly just something uh, a single person could not do without spending maybe a dozen years on it. The other is um, the systems uh, involved. So the engineering, the, the, the class abstractions, uh, what is easily composable. Um, this, um, in terms of like what a researcher can do, that is pretty much like um, what the person can actually run experiments on. Um, if you uh, think of the branching of um, empirical science versus theoretical science, then certainly on the empirical side, um, everything that we're able to do is limited as a function of uh, what we can do on a computer. Do you think that starting out, you were were you more from coming from like the statistical mathematical side? Was it more from the programming side of things, or was it a mix? I think. Um, uh, my background comes from uh, statistics, so mm -hmm. I um, um, I've always thought about um, grounding things in sort of real world applications. Thinking about um, uh, so when I was developing problems programming uh, systems, it was actually coming from um, not what we typically think of as problems programming, like um, systems like uh, church uh, venture, um, but rather statistical libraries like Bugs, uh, Jags, uh, Stan. Um, these were libraries that were um, built to say you can quickly iterate on statistical models and apply them to certain applications. So I think Stan is maybe the most modern example of this, where you are interested, you're like a social scientist or um, you're an economist who you know, is, has a particular uh, data set. They're trying to analyze the impact of a certain um, intervention, like you know, if I apply a certain job policy. And then there's a pretty clear model behind it, like a hierarchical model that regresses over some covariates. You get some prediction of an outcome. And then you just want a system that allows you to do um, pretty extensive inference or training that model. Uh, and so 
in terms of the system aspect, it's about what are the right um, uh, design abstractions, what are the right tools so that you can easily enable that whole uh, pipeline. And so you were kind of maybe using these different existing probabilistic programming languages like Stan uh, when you started your PhD and then this kind of, yeah, how did this kind of become an interest of yours to then start working on this? Yeah. Um, so I think when I um, started out of my PhD, it was early work on um, uh, work with uh, Stan and sort of like generic inference algorithms. So um, with Al Kuchikalbier, we had this work on um, ADVI, which stands for Automatic Differentiation Virtual Inference. This is around like 2014, 2015 age, where like generic virtual inference algorithms were just starting to become a thing. Um, and we were sort of thinking about like systems, um, uh, like or algorithms within Stan that allow you to do the sort of larger scale inference that um, you know Hamiltonian Monte Carlo or Gibbs samplers, more generic um, MTMC algorithms um, would, wouldn't be able to scale to. Um, mm -hmm. And um, from that sort of perspective, I think this was um, I think it was maybe a year or two later that TensorFlow was announced. So this was around 2016. And um, from there, um, I think a lot of the opportunities started to really open up because uh, GPUs were just much more readily available. You can actually just pipe these into the existing systems. There wasn't um, any kernel coding that you have to do anymore. It was all within just the Python interface, which is pretty nice. And mm -hmm. then it was just sort of a question of, um, you know, the, um, um, the hardware for all this exists. We have... GPUs, FPGAs were a promise that a lot of people were thinking about using. Um, and, um, you know, the software, the backends for this with numerical ecosystems were just appearing. Uh, so then the question was, how do you, um, how can you actually do research with these things? What are, what are the right, right ways to start building problems models to iterate with these things? How do you do problems inference over these things? Um, how do you start scaling to slightly larger data sets that, you know, we, were um, not able to do before. Yeah, so it was really all this all this stuff happening at once, kind of deep learning was on the rise. And then you had like these ways of doing the automatic differentiation becoming more and more maybe like mainstream or in different libraries, like you mentioned, TensorFlow is just starting to come out. Uh, so then I guess the question became like, how do we integrate this with this probabilistic side of things? Yeah, exactly. It was. Um... I think it was uh, partly it being sort of the right time in, um, in, in this sort of period where um, the main question was um, this sort of intersection between um, probabilistic modeling and deep learning. How do you um, accelerate that sort of research workflow? What are the models that you um, that we would um, want eventually converge to? So um, uh, you know, should we start using latent variable models versus just um, purely uh, likelihood-based models, what were the benefits of using sort of latent representations? Uh, what were the applications involved? So, you know, are things like graphical models still relevant in these settings of just raw high-dimensional perceptual data like images? Right, yeah. Yeah, so, so the first thing you um, talk about in the thesis was this library called Edward. And so when you're developing a new library or new probabilistic programming approach, uh, it's kind of at the intersection of two things, right? There's the machine learning community, and then there's the existing community, which have worked on these probabilistic programming 
languages. Yeah. So was it kind of difficult navigating the two different communities at once, like getting new ideas to be adopted or, yeah, just in general, or am I just like imagining some, like, there's no issues? (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, it's, um, I I always find it um, interesting um, what different folks' experiences in sort of this interdisciplinary area where you're you're meeting between two um, fields. In my case, um, for um, deep learning slash slash machine learning and um, problems of programming, on one side, the folks in the problems programming community came primarily from the programming languages community, mm-hmm. which is very much in this sort of subfield of theoretical computer science. So there they thought a lot about um, uh, expressiveness of the language. So um, are the languages too incomplete? How do you um, uh, build composable models that allow you to do crazy sorts of comp- uh, recursion? Um, how do you build um, these algorithms that allow you to do inference over models that might have um, some form of inference within um, the modeling itself. So if you have a model that thinks about another model, um, so if you have like two people, sort of of like a multi-agent sort of um, system interacting, how do you build that within this overall language? Um, So that was like a very theoretical pursuit. And then from the deep learning side, it was all about um, things we were talking about Scaling to massive data sets, getting things to work well on perceptual problems, thinking about benchmarks, um, taking neural networks, combining them with positive models. Um, and so um, that, was a, that was certainly um, a big disparity just in terms of um, like the way of thinking about these problems. Right. And certainly there's, um, around that time, there's also just a lot of sort of um, friction between understanding um, sort of like an existential crisis between the two, like what is the use case of deep learning, what is the use case of problems of programming? Um, uh, what is ultimately still effective in uh, a particular goal that we're trying to solve? Uh, so for a particular scientific application, do we need the two of them to be just one of them? Yeah, that makes sense. And then so you mentioned like this ADVI work that you're working on. I was curious, like the, a PhD thesis has to be linear because it's a document. Yeah. But was it kind of like while you were working on Edward, you were also motivating it based on the modeling or inference methods you were developing at the time? So you're actually working on them in parallel? Um, I think that's right. Um, uh, I was actually never uh, super interested in um, systems. Mm-hmm. I sort of just fell into that hole. Um, I was always interested in the model building and inferences um, such that you can get them to work on um, certain applications. Right. Um, and um, the bottleneck that I always went, um, got down into and the rabbit hole that I always got down into was uh, building uh, these uh, software abstractions such that you can actually do that sort of iteration. So, so there was so much work into the engineering process that it ended up becoming um, thinking about just by itself, what is the software required? What were the design principles? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was, um, um, I think it was sort of a natural transition, but it, it was something that was always simultaneously worked on. Um, and I think that was sort of um, important. And it goes back to, I think, your question about the sort of um, distinction between the two fields, because um, the way that I um, had always approached my research was um, uh, Doing, trying to just go down to the downstream problem, which is um, working with this uh, social scientist or an economist who, in um, 
uh, our research group and uh, Dave Wise group in Columbia, uh, we are working on a few different um, particular problems. Um, and it was always about thinking about how to build these models and algorithms to really work on them. And then once you try to get those models to work, it's about then the constraint is on the system side. Uh, what what are the tools that allow you to build composable inference algorithms if you wanted to do variable inference on a particular set of latent variables, if you want to do Markov chain Monte Carlo on another set, um, how do you easily uh, do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So it, it was really driven by the kind of concrete problems. And so, yeah, like you mentioned the design decisions, maybe we could discuss just some of the backstory of them and like what were the key design decisions. Like you mentioned, yeah. um, treating inference as a first class citizen. Uh, so maybe we could unpack that and other decisions that you had to make when designing uh, Edward. Yeah. Um, so I think one of the um, major differences that we had to um, figure out um, in Edward was that um, within um, probability methods for deep learning, it wasn't as clear cut in terms of this sort of um, two-stage separation of building a arbitrary probability model that you have particular domain knowledge of, and then applying some generic inference algorithm that automatically worked and gave you, um, you know, either good um, posterior approximate posterior inference, um, approximate posterior distributions over the latent variables model parameters, or you know, just trained faded model parameters. Mm -hmm. um, within um, this sort of scale, it's always about sort of jointly developing models and algorithms that work for those models. And um, the way that you construct those um, inference algorithms required a huge amount of investment that was roughly on par with how you think about how to build just the model a priori. Um, so here it was, um, so um, one of the things that we, were, that we ended up thinking about within Edward was thinking about inference as this sort of notion of a first-class citizen. So instead of thinking about modeling just sort of by itself, and then inference as an afterthought. Inference was sort of a core critical piece within the design of the system, um, just that you can flexibly change it instead of just having this sort of single black box um, query that you can then, you know, say, "Here is my model. Here is my data set. Give me my trained model." Oh. Mm -hmm. So, like, was one aspect of it? Because I could imagine, like, one one dream could be that you come up with these different abstractions and then you say like, okay, we have this inference abstraction. Mm -hmm. And so now a new researcher can come along and design a new inference method. And so then Edward can actually become a way of like distributing the new research to, to a wide, a wider audience than it would be uh, if it was just like in a, in the author's own like software package. That was, um, um, Certainly a goal within uh, our research lab, um, where we, um, instead of trying to um, uh, release individual like repositories of just paper code on a particular idea, um, we try to just merge everything within Edward so, so that it was pretty easily um, compartmentalized in, in that sort of way of, you know, here's a new input algorithm and it's this additional block that you can try to um, apply things to any sort of model that you're building. If you have a new uh, model for recommender systems or for modeling um, the evolution of concepts appearing in news articles, then that's just another model you can then apply these 
pre-existing built-in infrastructure algorithms for. Um, so I think that was certainly, um, that's certainly a nice component of um, probabilistic programming. I think um, um, another useful component of it is just sort of the um, the end-to-end um, scripts that are involved, just that you're you know, uh, not thinking about these um, modules by themselves, but also thinking about the end-to-end process of defining hyperparameters to instantiate data, the um, details that go into the modeling pipeline, and then the extensive amount of information in the um, training loop. So um, how do I initialize the um, uh, model parameters or my approximate posterior distribution's um, hyperparameters? How do I do any form of interleaf training? How do I incorporate a validation set versus a training set? Um, do I do any post-processing afterwards? Um, and then, of course, how do I actually just look at the downstream results? How consistent are those across the uh, different methods that I'm doing? As you're developing this, I used to be a software engineer. Well, and then I you know, developed software as a researcher as well. And one tricky thing is always determining like what the right abstraction level is. So it's almost like balancing between having the three line demo, which does everything and having like a lot of flexibility. So like in retrospect, was that kind of a, a a difficulty, something you had to figure out with this project as well, or did it all kind of fall out naturally from what you were doing? Um, I think that's, so that's a great question because I I think it, um, it's ultimately the question that is asked, um, uh, all the time in the problems of programming uh, community, which is um, for a given language, who is the target audience? Mm. Um, if I'm trying to build things for, um, uh, say, applied research scientists, so applied statisticians, economists, econometrists, uh, psychologists, um, what is that right set of abstractions? Do they really need to think about all the details behind the training loop, for example? Mm-hmm. Or if your target audience is machine learning researchers who are iterating on the models and algorithms themselves, um, is this sort of black box sort of um, approach of segment, segmenting everything and hiding a lot of the details, is that correct for those people who want to see all the details? Right, yeah. Um, so for... Um, Edward 1.0, I think it was um, trying to reach this um, compromise between the two um, sides of, say, two extremes of, say, applied research scientists who care most about just the downstream results and don't care too much about the details behind everything, and then the um, ML researchers. And I think um, as things try to evolve within our lab, just for our own sort of, um, as our own sort of tool set, it started to gradually shift more and more towards things for ML researchers. Mm-hmm. So what are all the details that we can try to expose? What are, um, what are all the abstractions that we can sort of remove and just make more low level? Uh-huh. Yeah, that makes sense. So then did that kind of lead into this Edward 2.0? Because it seems like from, from reading through this, it seems like Edward 2.0 was trying to make it uh, maybe more a core abstraction. Yeah. Um, I like to think of the transition as like um, like if you look, if you look among the um, uh, most used um, uh, problems of programming languages, you have things that are more just for um, domain um, experts and um, applied um, statisticians like Stan and Bugs and Jags, mm-hmm. and there you don't you don't have to expose all these details. 
And um, as we move more towards this target audience of ML researchers who are just trying to develop things for deep latent variable models, um, the specific use cases of those deep latent variable models for certain scientific applications was like less known. So um, rather than try to target that audience of like um, domain experts who just want to use these latest and greatest models, we wanted to expose things first to the researchers who were developing those models in the first place. Mm. So then that shift definitely led to from Edward to Edward II, which was even more low level that threw away um, a lot of the abstractions behind, say, um, inference. Um, so in Edward II, um, we actually removed the component behind inference algorithm altogether. Mm. It was um, all about just random variables and um, uh, thinking about, you know, building loss functions that had some um, um, source of stochasticity in them. So, you know, that bottoms out to the actual random variables involved in building out the loss function, doing arbitrary sort of backprop through that whole network, thinking about um, randomness that appears in neural network layers. So uh, layers that sort of couple any sort of approximate posterior inference and the actual priors and domain knowledge that appears in them. So it was this much more mixed and much more sort of low-level uh, language. Um, and you can certainly think of, say, um, the low-level thing as um, this interface that you can then use to implement the higher-level interface. Um, but our primary focus with other two was thinking about what were the right um, design principles, the right abstractions, just for that low-level. Right, yeah. Yeah, you had this line in the thesis that said, random variables are all you need. And that was kind of the philosophy. <laughs> right. And then um, in terms of the the systems underlying this, like the distributed side of the of, of things, did anything major change over time from Edward to Edward 2.0? Or does this get kind of taken care of the things that are implemented in TensorFlow? So it's kind of a separate issue. I think it was, um, it certainly added to evidence why you needed more exposure to the low-level um, mechanics. Mm. So I think um, one of the major conceptual differences between um, like what was before deep probabilistic programming and um, once you start thinking about deep learning systems with probabilistic programming is inference. So we talked about, a bit about that. I think there's a lot more details that are um, that you have to figure out ranging from um, uh, how you're how you're able to do pulse programming with just matrix algebra, how you're able to utilize hardware that goes beyond um, CPUs. Um, if you're um, thinking about um, third-party library integration, so if you want to um, not have to reinvent the wheel with neural networks, with um, train, like with loss function code, um, how you're able to import those and let them interface with this overall ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So if you're, um, so in, in order to solve those goals, you have to be, at this stage such that it's more of a embedded language where you're borrowing a lot of elements that come from an existing package like TensorFlow or Theano or PyTorch. So the theme for deep process programming is on one side enabling inference as a first-class citizen, and then there's all these other things that are sort of swapped under the rug, like um, the theme of embedded languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, like looking forward, do you see any um, kind of major areas where these languages could go next or these libraries could go next, or is that kind of still something that the field and that everyone's figuring out? I think it was interesting that uh, deep purpose programming sort of started at this um, um, active area research. I think there's um, 
been a few areas where it's um, already being used in say um, products. So um, within um, um, Google, as you may know, there's um probability, which was uh, built, um, and um, a lot of that was sort of sort of this toolbox of probability distributions around Markov chain Monte Carlo algorithms around um, models you can build um, with you know arbitrary neural network layers. There's um, there's work that um, um, I've been advising um, with the team uh, doing a recommender systems. So here you're um, um, you're not trying to think of recommender systems in the classical research perspective of sort of a matrix factorization problem where you have users on one side of say rows and then items on the columns and then you're trying to decompose the two. Rather in these real world systems, you often have this sort of um, evolution of users that sort of evolve over time. You have items that evolve over time. You have the interaction between the two. So you really get into this sort of um, sequential decision-making sort of process. And process programming systems have been critical in sort of explicitly modeling what the interventions are. So you get into causality, what the user distributions are, what the item distributions are, mm-hmm. how, the, how the dynamics of the thing evolve over time. Um, so there's so many sort of sources of scasticity that having the explicit sort of um, generative process, the, the overall model behind the ecosystem, helps a lot in sort of formulating the ideas, thinking about the overall problem. So even in these new settings, like the sequential, you, meant, you mentioned like the sequential aspect, yeah. Um, kind of the existing abstractions that you have, the existing primitives, those are still well designed for these these new situations that you're running into. Yeah, I, I think even in um, sort of like just core um, deep probabilistic sort of research. So you think about say how to um, effectively train uh, Bayesian neural networks, how to um, have deep gussing processes, and how to get good uncertainty estimates and robustness. Um, a lot of that is distilled down to what are the right, um, how do you build the, um, how do you actually build out that Bayesian neural network so that you can train it and apply it to a bunch of different problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the elements that goes into that is, um, comes from positive programming. Yeah, maybe before moving on to kind of the second part, which is more on developing methods versus Edward and Edward 2.0. I mean, maybe someone's listening right now and they're considering or their their dream is to have some large open source library. And like you mentioned, like you might have actually started out more on the statistics side. But then this became a need to develop the, the right systems for it. And I'd imagine at some point, like when this was getting big, there was maybe some like it becomes difficult to maybe manage a large open source library. So not necessarily challenges. It could be positive things as well. Are there any like takeaways you have from this experience of having an open source library, uh, which has you know thousands of stars on GitHub? Yeah, that's um, that's a, an interesting question because it it, it goes down into like um, incentives and the benefits of open source itself and how uh, open source can be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are a lot of um, trade offs. Um, and it's a lot of things that you don't typically um, have to think about if you're like a PhD student who's just trying to get three publications for their um, thesis that they can then uh, uh, you know, graduate with. Um, and um, I think um, part of so part of the difficulties goes into um, 
maintenance, which is mm-hmm. a lot of time spent sort of, you know, on a daily basis. There's a lot of it is on community interaction, thinking about the, um, you know, bugs, issues, uh, feature requests that you know, people raise, um, you know, um, reviewing code. Um, and certainly none of that actually leads down to like a, you know, a publication or anything that gives you an artifact you can write in your, your uh, resume. Mm. Um, uh, so that's one trait. So that's one um, potential thing you have to be mindful of. Another, that's actually a beneficial one, is more um, exposure. It's um, it's um, building these systems that are actually readily used by folks mm-hmm. and thinking about um, impact on sort of a practical basis. Um, instead of trying to um, maximize for you know your H index or your citation count, it's about you know having these. Um, um, uh, like re- like app physically available tools that people can then iterate with and, and use, and um, you can find a bunch of use cases for them, and um, just seeing seeing people um, find them useful and, and build on top of the tools is I think a, a pretty nice feeling. Um, um, so that's uh, that's one positive outcome that comes from it certainly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe if you want, we could go to the next section which is on applications in variational inference. Uh, and so uh, one thing that you developed was this variational Gaussian process, uh, a Bayesian non-parametric variational model. Uh, so did you just want to provide some like background, like some key background points on how you got interested in this type of model uh, and yeah, just the backstory of developing it? Yeah. Um... So um, around this time, um, I think deeply latent variable models were starting to become um, just a possibility. So um, there was a lot of excitement around that intersection of neural networks and probability distributions, where latent variables appear, how um, you're able to effectively train these things. And um, in that work, what we were thinking about was um, um, for a particular model, like um, say, a variational autoencoder or multi-layer variational autoencoder, um, how you're able to just do effective inference and get good downstream numbers, either uh, bits per dimension on um, you know some generation task on a perceptual problem, or if you're using the invert model in say um, uh, topic discovery. So if you're trying to find most relevant um, topics within uh, news articles, if you're trying to see what sort of content or uh, theme surface as you look through um, uh, you know, textbooks in history, um, all that sort of just latent structure, how do you actually expose that? Mm-hmm. Um, and so in that work, what we were thinking about was just inference and um, what was a way to give you more flexible posteriors that people just weren't currently doing. Um, a lot of it at the, at the time was, um, was known as the sort of um, mean field um, uh, approach where um, for a particular set of latent variables, you just sort of assume that all of them are independent. So you can do something as um, simple as Gaussian distributions mm-hmm. that are independent across every variable. And then it allows for cheap training, but maybe the actual um, latent representations, the, the latent variables that you discover aren't super meaningful. Right, yeah. And, and like the key idea, um, I mean, like if someone was to to read through the thesis or, or the, your paper, I think was the key idea that you, so you have this mean field, which is kind of like this independence assumption. 
between the variables. But then you place this additional distribution over some parameters, uh, and then you kind of give that to the the mean field part. (laughs) Trying to uh, talk about equations on a podcast is always tricky, but yeah. Yeah, absolutely. it was certainly the, the, the concept of like auxiliary uh, variables yeah, yeah. Um, that are something shared across the uh, mean field factorization. There's a, um, uh, there's a well-known um, theorem from Bayes known as um, uh, De Finetti, where you're able to um, factorize arbitrarily exchangeable random variables into this sort of structure where you have fully factorized variables that are independent and then some shared random source um, and so this is like a common concept within Bayes. Um, and that was the sort of principle that we were trying to use to um, build more expressive distributions for um, posterior approximations. You have some form of hierarchy where everything is shared, and then you have a bunch of things that are independent. Mm-hmm. And then you had this universal approximation theorem that it could capture any posterior distribution. Uh, and something that else that came to mind is these normalizing flow models. Uh, wasn't this kind of a motivation for those that you could run this flow and then it would model any, like a more complex posterior distribution? Or are those kind of two separate things that I'm getting mixed up? No, I, I think those are, um, I think it's a fairly accurate um, connection. Um, the um, So the Gaussian process part that appeared in the work, this was thinking about the sort of, um, um, transformation where you have um, an initial um, random source and then you apply some um, uh, sophisticated function. In this case, it was GP where you're able to get random draws from the function itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get some particular output. So then if you integrate over all of the um, possible functions that you get from the Gaussian process, then you have some marginal distribution. That's the marginal distribution of the outputs. And um, there's a um, well-known um, property from like just vanilla probability, um, which is uh, known as sort of like a uh, inverse CDF or like a, there's a, the inverse of the inverse CDF is just the CDF. And I think there's a specific name for it um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where like if you have um, a uniform distribution, you apply a particular function to it, you can get an arbitrary distribution on the, out, on the outside. So if you wanted to um, approximate any, or you wanted to sort of like match any particular data distribution, what you can do is start with that random source and then try to get the inverse CDF of the underlying distribution. And you can show that that inverse CDF applied to the uniform gives you that underlying distribution. So that's what we're trying to do with the GP. That's what normalizing flows are ultimately trying to do as well. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And then on the topic of GPs, Gaussian processes, um, one thing that's come up on the show before is um, whenever we talk about like a more classic quote unquote method, uh, maybe classic just means not something that has to do with deep learning. Right. Um, kind of thinking about if I was like a brand new student or a new researcher and I'm hearing about deep learning, all the applications I'm looking for are using deep learning, kind of what would motivate me to learn about Gaussian processes? Like, do you think that this is still something that everyone should learn about and that it's rewarding to, to learn about? Uh, that is a great question. I, I think it depends on um, your um, goal in um, research. If it's to um, 
build better um, models that reach you know performance on a given task. I think oftentimes, unless you're trying to um, radically change the field with like a whole paradigm shift of thinking, mm-hmm. it's going to be very difficult to get any sort of headway behind um, using a classical approach and thinking about the details to get it to work at that level. On the other hand, if it's sort of about um, sort of a, just a deeper understanding between all the different ideas behind learning systems, how they interact, how, what the limits of neural networks are, um, what are the um, uh, properties like, um, say, um, in statistics, a common one is like the asymptotic behavior. So if you have infinite data or if you have um, an infinite number of hidden units or, um, um, you know, or even just like robustness properties, if you have the underlying data distribution shift, um, where, what is its behavior and how do I understand that? Um, and classic tools are often helpful there. Um, it, you have to be very mindful of what classic tools you're studying, however, because, mm-hmm. because there's so much literature on them by sort of definition, um, it's very easy to get lost in like what's relevant today, what's not relevant. Yeah, yeah. So it actually might be useful to find like i mean if you know about deep learning and you want to learn about gaussian processes maybe start off with like what is the connection between these two and then that'll kind of anchor it to something that you do know about and then if you want to go deeper then there's plenty of literature as you said yeah it's um it's it's also similar to if like whether it's worth reading older deep learning papers like older Mm -hmm. neural network papers if you still need to know about the history and um approaches and coding theory under and, and compression and if you know you still need to know about the minimum description length principle or Siamese networks or mm-hmm. um, anything like that yeah, uh, yeah well luckily uh, minimum description length was on the previous episode so nowadays you could just listen oh, great. to this <laughs> review as well so <laughs> um, yeah so then the uh, we can go to the next section then and it was on this likelihood free variational inference Mm -hmm. so like you were saying before i guess again you're in this inference setting where you want to uncover the kind of latent factors then these likelihood free models for people who aren't familiar with these what what are these are these implicit models yeah another name for them is um, implicit modeling and uh, a good example from science is um, if you're thinking about models for um, ecological behavior so if you think about changes in population. So if you look at a given biome or an ecosystem and you think about um, the different um, species involved, then you're sort of thinking about the underlying dynamics of how, say, predator and prey populations have evolved over time, how they interact. Um, and a lot of the theory underlying that comes from sort of like not necessarily machine learning behavior, but more like differential equations. So it's mm. um, rates of change. It's um, it's simple um, uh, formulas. Another good example comes from physics, where um, if you're thinking about particle physics, um, then uh, there are you know very well-known equations that are sort of heuristic, and they have very few hyperparameters. They're very few parameters, but they um, um, you know are very important parameters to to, to think about. Then uh, it's easy to simulate equ- um, data from these overall equations because they're um, precisely describing um, sort of a generative process. Mm-hmm. If you have some initial population, given that you can apply these equations, then over time you get uh, the, the new uh, 
the new populations or new data or how new locations for all these particles uh, when they interact with one another. Um, and then the question is, given purely these processes that allow you to generate data, um, how do you uh, actually train these things and get sort of um, useful inferences and useful results out of them? Um, and in these equations, if you try to calculate what the density, the underlying density or likelihood is, it is um, uh, that itself is already very uh, difficult to do because you have to integrate over that entire dynamics problem. Yeah, I liked the um, the the introduction. Got kind of philosophical about like in physics, if you have the initial conditions, then if everything's deterministic, then from that everything else flows. Right. Yeah, that's um, that's certainly um, a philosophical thing that I think a lot about as well. Like Laplace's uh, demon, where um, if you know the initial conditions and you have sort of infinite compute to just simulate everything, mm -hmm. uh, what is really stochastic? Um, and I think that that um, phenomena appears a lot in how we think about machine learning and certainly causality is uh, is hugely baked into that uh, question as well. And then you can uh, so again is an example, generative adversarial network is an example of an implicit model. Yeah. Yeah, so did that kind of, because maybe around this time, I, I don't know what year this was in, but was this kind of around the surge of GANs and then you started thinking about like, how do we think about this in a, using the language of probability? Yeah, I think this this was another example of maybe um, uh, this interdisciplinary area where you're meeting between um, subfields. Mm -hmm. This one was um, deep learning with generative adversarial networks, and then the other was um, uh, statistical sciences, where you have um, uh, these more traditional approaches, uh, one subfield of which is known as um, approximate Bayesian computation. Mm -hmm. And um, there it is. Um, they have a whole different set of terminology. One of them is sort of what, known as a uh, doubly intractable problem where um, not only is the normalizing constant that you're trying to um, do inference, so you're, if you want to maximize likelihood, normalizing constant is difficult to do, but um, the, um, the overall um, uh, likelihood itself is, is intractable. Mm -hmm. um, so um, uh, yeah, there's, um, uh, it was certainly, um, GANs were certainly very useful around this area because they came up with this really nice perspective coming from um, this um, discrimination generation sort of perspective uh, and give you an alternative objective where you're maybe trying to reach a data distribution under some unknown objective. It's this weird, um, uh, uh, you know, national equilibrium sort of um, two-agent fighting style. Mm -hmm. And now you're trying to think about how those ideas might be useful for more arbitrary generators that use differential equations that use programs that generate the whole structure, um, many different things like that. Uh -huh. And so then the likelihood-free variational inference method that you developed, or even going back to the variational Gaussian process, kind of nowadays, if you look back on, on working on those, what do you think of those methods now um, in terms of like, have there been additions to them or did they kind of carve out their own uh, like unique area and yeah? Yeah, I mean, if you um, tie back to um, like deep positive programming, I think they're they're great examples of um, 
a particular complication that was super difficult to be able to do um, uh, without the, the systems. And that is, if you have just the data generating process, if you start with initial conditions and you apply these um, functional transformations that are maybe deterministic, um, then how do you do um, uh, flexible inference over them? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there are, there are good use cases of that. If you're, um, uh, if you're um, thinking of their use cases, like use cases specifically of these sort of um, likelihood-free only methods um, these days, I think they're still being widely used and um, uh, the areas as mentioning of ecology, of uh, physics. I think um, uh, Kyle Cranmer's work in uh, particle physics especially comes to mind where mm. um, there is active engagement around um, likelihood-free methods. And then like as a whole, after working uh, like all these years on these probabilistic methods, have you ever had any changes in, is this the approach that I, sh- I should be using and I should be focusing on? Um, or has it kind of confirmed your interest in them and like you want to keep going? This is like yeah. the approach, the perspective that you should be taking. Um, I think one thing I've certainly benefited over um, in my PhD has been uh, like a diversity of different ideas. And that comes from working with many different collaborators, working with collaborators that differ across like levels of seniority. So you have, you know, younger PhD students uh, in terms of their career, older one, older like post like postdocs or assistant professors, uh, more well-tenured professors, things like that. Um, so I think that diversity sort of helps you like ground understanding what perspectives, what problems should I still be working on, things like that. Uh-huh. I think for probability um, specifically, um, I my perspective is that it's um, it's one useful um, avenue, um, but it's not one that I've always um, subscribed to in, in every research problem that I've investigated. Sometimes I would go right. just deep into architecture design. So I've worked on changes to just transformers to get them to work on image generation, for example. Uh Or um, uh, some of that is purely systems-based. How do I get neural networks to scale and work with TPUs um, and model and parallelize that models? So it's more core deep learning focused, I guess. Uh Yeah, one thing I want to start doing is um, just like ask the same question to different people from different perspectives. So I had um, Tung Yu Ma on who works on theory and I asked him, when does kind of beating state-of-the-art matter? And it was interesting to hear his perspective from a theory perspective. So from your perspective, when does beating soda matter? Like, do you ever seek to beat some state-of-the-art in your own research? Or when will it kind of catch your eye if there's some new method which beats state-of-the-art in, in uh, whatever yeah. area you care about? Man, I'm, I'm interested to hear what Tang Yu um, uh, would have said on this. Um, so from my perspective, um, I think that, um, uh, let me sort of take a step back to to answer the question with a more general answers and then go refine it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, my perspective on publication papers overall is that most papers are useless. Um, rather, um, I, I do think, however, that the quantity of useless papers is still an important thing to have. And I think, um, that's partially because you, um, Papers are a useful sort of artifact for students to um, grow. Um, and, and they're more useful for students oftentimes than they are for the community at large. Um, and there are many ways of 
be able to grow and have those papers be useful. Um, and um, one of the ways is to think about novel, interesting ideas to iterate on where you don't care so much about the specific results on you know, standardized benchmarks. Mm-hmm. And another useful thing you can think about is the deep details that go into actually trying to beat state-of-the-art. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, being fair on baselines, thinking about well-tuned details around you know, what are all the moving parts with hyperparameters. Did I, um, you know, if I change my learning rate schedule by you know, uh, this, this much, how, um, how robust are my results to those things? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I think there's, uh, uh, there's, there's utility in both beating city art, there's utility in coming up with useful ideas. I think in the spirit of the majority of papers that come out, um, they're all about the experience for the student to, to grow. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then so after your PhD, um, so you're now at Google, how, how, do you, how would you say a typical day is similar or different to being a PhD student? I think, uh, so in my PhD, I was actually spending maybe um, the last two or even three years at, at Google, um, mm-hmm. just, just there full time. And I was um, sort of putting off my thesis on, on hold for quite a while. And so it was, um, that intersection was sort of, that transition was sort of interesting because um, you started to sort of see the, like, um, directly you started to sort of see the differences between when you would go to your research group and um, uh, in your PhD life, like when I was in Columbia, I would uh, fly semi-regularly between um, New York and um, California um, and what the life was like just as a research scientist within a large corporate company. Mm-hmm. And um, um, I think uh, for particular differences, um, there weren't too many um, uh, a big, I think a big part of it is just sort of the um, the people involved that are around you and sort of way of thinking. Mm-hmm. I think of, I like to think of um, at least the core research within Google, for example, as being um, a massive university. It's if you look at the size of Google Brain in particular, for example, it's maybe five times, ten times even the size of a typical CS department, mm-hmm. um, and because there's so many people involved and there's, um, there's so many different things that they're all working on. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, that certainly provides you a huge amount of exposure to a lot of problems that you're not typically um, thinking about. Um, I think another difference is when you're at a company like that, you don't have a um, direct advisor that you know, is keeping you um, on toes regarding a particular research agenda. So it, it, there's much more freedom defining what that agenda is and how the massive amount of resources that you have in this larger university, effectively, how that um, ties into yeah what you're ultimately interested in. Yeah, that makes sense. And then like so, one thing that you're interested in now, I think, is this like uncertainty and robustness. Is that kind of a new branch that you took from your research work, PhD work, or do you see it as kind of a, a natural progression? Um, so a lot of my work has been on uh, systems and like virtual protocols, developing models. Um, a big part of that was also just like Bayesian neural networks as one of the model classes. Mm. And um, I think that the the use cases of um, 
uncertainty in neural nets was maybe the um, like the right um, area to figure out where this sort of problem perspective can have most impact. Um, I think uh, my maybe first year at Google was hugely exploration on understanding where public systems, where probably distributions generally have impact. And you know, they there's a lot of perspective ones, and I think you probably talked to about a few of them in, in podcasts. I think maybe the um, the last podcast on compression is that is is one such application. Mm-hmm. Um, the one that I found impact was thinking about things from more of like a safety perspective. Mm. When do you trust the model's predictions? How do you um, understand the model's behavior when you apply it to unknown inputs? distribution inputs right yeah and so this probabilistic modeling is kind of a natural uh way of formalizing and and studying this yeah absolutely and there's um certainly a lot of literature that comes from you know traditional statistics from Bayesian statistics that grounds this um but they're not the end-all perspective to probably not the end-all perspective to solving those problems yeah, this has been this has been really fun going uh, going back and discussing this. Um, I remember like early in my PhD, actually seeing this Edward library come out, and I remember it was at the time when like yeah TensorFlow was on the rise. I remember I was in a deep learning course, and um, they said we're going to use this new dynamic library called PyTorch. I was like, whoa, it's dynamic. Right. Um, so it was really cool to, to hear about the history of, of these things and how they've evolved. Um, yeah, so there's two questions that I always ask to end the thesis review. So the first is, if you think about having some objective function uh, for what was guiding your behavior during your PhD, uh, what would it be? And then do you think that it's different nowadays? I think my objective function during my PhD was to uh, learn um, and that um, uh, on one side came up from this sort of bottom up perspective of you know thinking about the applications and how things are grounded I think what the ideas involved another side is sort of categorizing all of the you know there's so many different machine learning ideas so many tools for artificial intelligence and it was just hard as a you know newcomer just entering this field to see how everything fit together mm-hmm. so that's partly how I entered the um, you know, and got excited by the probabilistic perspective. And that's why I did a, you know, I centered my entire PhD around that sort of um, theme. Um, I think um, as I've, I guess, matured as a researcher, um, uh, it's less about um, learning these days and more about just um, doing research. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I think I've settled down on like, what are the particular questions and what are, what are the open questions say in, um, using a positive model, like what are the challenges with uncertainty? How do you get these models to generalize well? What are the use cases of positive programming systems and how do you develop what the right design principles are? And now it's more a question of like impact. Given the ideas that you know work well, how do we um, convince people? How do, you, um, um, how do you solve fundamental problems that people are thinking about and um, get them to um, uh, you know, be applied more generally to um, applications people don't typically think about. Right, yeah. Yeah, so moving from a focus on learning to then doing research and um, focusing on impact. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I do think that there's a, I think a big part of a PhD in terms of writing papers is just about um, the learning experience and mm. 
um, a lot of what I was doing, like with um, developing Edward, was primarily just to build these things, and it was a lot of it was just trial and error and sort of seeing what could work and what um, couldn't work, and that le led to the publication that wasn't necessarily the end goal. It was just sort of something that was uh, on my mind. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And then the last question is, if you could come up with one piece of advice for a new researcher who's just getting started. Um, if it was just one piece of advice, I think um, the biggest challenge for um, uh, a new researcher is coming up with the right problem to solve. Mm. Um, uh, it's easy to find a niche where you can come up with sort of a new idea, extending some existing paper and try to get a publication out of it. Um, it's much harder to find areas where you can really have impact and um, and get something that is successful. And um, uh, part of that is sort of just luck. Uh, you just sort of um, shoot a bunch of shots and you sort of see which ones stick. Part of that is experience, sort of developing, you know, understanding, you know, what are the things that people care a lot about. Um, and part of that is talking with a lot of different um, folks and um, getting the experience across many different people and thinking about what they're thinking about. Um, so I would definitely stress just thinking about the right problem. And um, I know there's a lot of um, focus early in your PhD to just try to publish or um, otherwise you'll perish. But I do think that um, instead, of, instead of being very sort of myopic on that particular mindset, it's useful to sort of take the opportunity with your PhD to understand things and try to refine your scope and what that right problem you want to solve is. Yeah, so don't be afraid to take time to figure out the right problem. And then it actually sounds like combining with what you said before, um, like once you focus on a problem, maybe in the future you, you could change to focus more on impact. So the types of problems you, you decide to focus on might also evolve over the course of your career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah, that's great advice. And um, thanks so much for taking t the time to do this and coming on the thesis review. Thanks for inviting me.